0: All right. Um, This morning, we're going to continue our exploration of the Holy Spirit uh, with what I think is a pretty familiar passage from the prophet Joel. Um, I grew up hearing it every Pentecost, because Peter quotes it in his sermon in Acts 2. Um, But before we start, uh, you guys are going to humor me. You're going to humor me a lot in this sermon, actually. Um, But uh, I want to do something that we do in godly play. So one of the first things that we learn in Godly Play is that you cannot enter a mystery unless you are ready. Um, And I can't imagine anything more mysterious than the Holy Spirit. So, um, I mean, we've already done a lot to prepare to enter this time of learning and praying and feasting together, but I feel like a little extra preparation couldn't hurt. Uh, So in a second, I want you to close your eyes and take a few deep breaths just until you feel still and quiet inside. Um, and then I'll give you a sec to do that, and then I'll pray for us before we go on. Cool? cool. Awesome. Okay. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here. Thank you that... Um, that you reveal yourself to us. Um, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts are acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right. Um, All right, so if you will, I'd like you to think back to the story of the Holy Spirit's arrival on Pentecost. Uh, If you remember, the women and men who were Jesus' followers were assembled in an upper room, and they heard something like a violent, rushing wind. And they saw something like tongues of fire descend above each person. And there's a painting that I want to show you. This is, um, it's El Greco, and I love it because it's so dramatic. And because you can tell that there were women there. Because even though the scripture says there were women there, a lot of people who paint it only put dudes. But anyway, let's do the next one. So this is the whole thing. I wanted to do a close-up so you could see their faces better. But if you look at the figures at the bottom, um, they're like knocked backwards by the force of the Spirit's arrival. Um, So we can leave that up there for a bit. Um, These people filled with the Spirit spill outside, and they start to speak in different languages. Uh, And their scripture says that they're declaring the mighty deeds of the Lord and... They're speaking languages that they didn't know before, um, and they're the exact same languages that all the folks assembled in Jerusalem speak. And so everyone present is hearing, uh, you know, what the great things that God has done in their own language, which is miraculous and amazing. And everyone is like, "Whoa, what just happened?" Um, except for like the cynics in the crowd. You know, there's always like one or two, um, and and they start making fun of the followers of Christ, and saying that they're drunk. And then I like to imagine that a hush falls over the crowd, and Peter stands up and delivers what turns out to be one heck of a sermon. Um, And he opens with this incredible prophecy from Joel, uh, pointing to it as an explanation for what they have seen and heard, Uh, that this isn't drunkenness. It's the spirit poured out. Um, Thanks. We have spent most of the series on the Holy Spirit considering ways in which the Spirit has shown up specifically in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures. And in the course of the series, we've seen the Spirit anoint God's people for God's purposes. Um, Kings, artisans, prophets, they're all empowered by this anointing Spirit to do God's good work in the world. Whether it's leading an army into battle or crafting intricate furniture for the tabernacle, or speaking life into a valley of dry bones. But here, both in Joel's original prophecy and also in Acts when Peter quotes it, we see something different, um, something that is so radical it's hard for me to even wrap my mind around it. Um, God has poured out his spirit, the spirit breath of the Almighty that animates and anoints and heals and creates and recreates that spirit is poured out on all people, not just old white dudes. Which there's nothing wrong with old white dudes. I, some of my best friends are old white dudes. But everybody, um, you know, women. Imagine that. Joel emphasizes this by mentioning uh, sons and daughters, and then he he does it again. He says uh, men and women, just to make sure that everyone gets the point. Um, there's also no discrimination based on social status. Um, uh, slaves and free everyone um, and no, no, um, no discrimination based on age either young and old it doesn't matter um, some translations say pour out on all flesh which I really like the sound of that um, so to put it another way not just y'all but all y'all um, get the Holy Spirit Something else worth noting, when we look at what happens in the early church in the days and months and years after Peter quotes this prophecy, um, it looks like the spirit doesn't just rest on the the early Christians and then leave, um, which is kind of what happens often in the Old Testament. Um, The Holy Spirit remains on these people as they coalesce into the church. So the spirit is, is driving some really... Drastic changes in in the way that everyone is living and and you know being in community together. Um, so they share everything. They're generous to each other and to outsiders. Um, many of them go out from Jerusalem and share the good news in far off places. They're fearless in the, pa- in, the pla- in the face of persecution. Um, they're utterly transformed. And they prophesy, kind of on the regular. And, you know, there's all these, these gifts of the spirit that we read about um, in the New Testament as well. Uh, Acts is just like one miraculous spirit happening after another. Um, but yeah, this is what it looks like to be a community filled with the spirit. Now, it's worth noting that this idea of all flesh receiving the Holy Spirit is radical, even for Peter. And Peter's the one quoting the prophecy. Um, it's, it takes some really dramatic intervention by the Holy Spirit to convince Peter that all flesh includes Gentile believers as well as Jewish believers. Um, So even in the earliest early days of the church, God's people are running to catch up with the welcome and inclusivity of the Spirit. Um, As I was talking this over with Chris the other week, he reminded me that the word radical is from the Latin word for root. Um, Radish comes from the same root word. which is so fitting because not only is Joel's vision for this outpouring of the Spirit on all people radical in that it's really progressive, but it's radical in that it's getting back to the original intention that God had. Um, you know, to have nothing standing in the way of humanity's communion with God and with one another, with all flesh ignited with the spark of divine love, participating in joyful praise and creative purpose. In Chris's sermon last week, he asked us to stretch our imaginations into this kind of existence and use the words of the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel to call us into the same radical way of being, the kingdom way, where the dead rise to life and predator and prey are led by children into a peaceable existence together. That's where we're headed, God's beautiful kingdom right here, and there's no way that this vision is going to happen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that has been poured out on us. And if you're sitting there thinking, "Ah, uh, that's definitely not me. I'm down with Jesus. But all this woo-woo Holy Spirit stuff is just not my speed, um, I want you to humor me again. I want you to pinch yourself. What's that? Flesh. Who is the Holy Spirit poured out on? All flesh. Everybody. Um, And we're talking about a third of the Trinity. You can't can't leave out the Holy Spirit. Even if what the Spirit does makes you feel uncomfortable, uh, that's okay. But at the same time, I'm sensitive to the fact that we each have different histories um, in church and that different people and different denominations view the Holy Spirit's role in the life of a believer in really different ways. Um, And I think that's a good thing, actually. So maybe you come from a more high-church, liturgical kind of background, and you know the Holy Spirit as the one who seals us in baptism as Christ's own forever, and the one who inhabits the sacraments, imbuing them with mystical significance. Or maybe you come from, like, a Baptist or a Bible church kind of background, and you have no idea what I just said um, about sacraments and mystical who's-its and what's-its, but you know the Holy Spirit as the one who called you into a relationship with God when you first became a Christian and who meets you in the scriptures to speak right to your heart and to your life when you get that like that verse that's just exactly what you need. Or maybe you come from a more Pentecostal or charismatic background and you know the Holy Spirit. You know the Holy Spirit as the one who can fall on us in powerful ways causing us to speak in tongues, or dance, or fall out on the floor, or other amazing things. These are just a few examples. I know that there's more, not just because there are a lot of denominations out there, but because I know the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, everybody, uh, the whole family of God. So acknowledging that God, that Joel's prophecy is for us, and that we should be expecting prophecy and visions and dreams as part of our life together, let's think about what that could look like for Oak Church. I think we can find some clues about how this could look by examining the spirit happening at Pentecost when the spirit was first poured out on believers. And then we can also look a little bit at how those believers were afterwards. So the first thing, uh, I'm going to loop back to this language from Godly Play about getting ready. Um, and we can do the picture. Yeah. I love that picture. Um, Jesus' followers were gathered in that upper room awaiting the promised Holy Spirit. And Acts tells us that in the days between um, Jesus' ascension and Pentecost, they were together and praying constantly. And then, you know, at some point in there, the Spirit came. So what they've done Is they've done everything they can to open themselves up to receive. But even though they've done everything they can to be ready, they still have to wait for the spirit's timing. There's no magic lever that makes the spirit come at a particular time. I think that our more charismatic or Pentecostal friends hold this tension really well that if you've you've ever been to a more charismatic worship service, there's this sense of collective hospitality towards the spirit um, that places all human plans under the direction of the spirit. Um, And that's why you'll hear folks say things like, well, we were supposed to end at two, but the Holy Spirit showed up, so we didn't leave until five. Um, And that's a good thing. I I think we could learn a lot from that kind of flexibility and openness. Uh, Second thing... I think that we can see at that first Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out that that the Holy Spirit can be something that we experience with our physical senses. Um, you know, we're not just minds and souls; we're, we have bodies, and bodies that were created by God. And part of the mystery of the Holy Spirit is that we can experience the Spirit's presence in our bodies, whether it's speaking in tongues feeling our hearts burn as we hear something that resonates deeply within us, or tasting the bread and the wine at communion, the Holy Spirit is working in all of these very physical things. And the more present we are in our bodies and allow our bodies to be activated by this indwelling spirit, the more able we are to join in that spirit's work of renewal that's happening outside those doors and in our neighborhood. And then finally, uh, that kind of hints at the next thing that I'd like for us to notice about the Spirit's work at Pentecost. Um, You can see, and this picture shows that really nicely too, uh, you can see that the outpouring of the Spirit happened both collectively, you know, they're all gathered together in prayer, and they all heard the rushing wind, um, but it was also experienced individually, so, You know, there's a tongue of fire on each person, and then each person was speaking a different language. Um, We as the people of God can experience the Spirit in ways that can be deeply personal, but they're not necessarily meant to be private. Uh, Paul writes at length to the Corinthian church about the gifts of the Spirit to try to get that church family to understand that the Holy Spirit gives these gifts of teaching and prophecy and tongues and all the rest of it for the church, for the building up of Christ's body. And that's what happened after Pentecost. Uh, The believers were filled with the spirit and they went out to declare the great and mighty works of the Lord. And when Peter's sermon was over, they continued to live together, always inviting more people in and sharing everything they had and going about the work of being the church. And this life together with one another and with God was in itself a sign. It wasn't the blood and fire and smoke, like the pillars of cloud and fire that led God's people through the wilderness, but the Holy Spirit was leading these people in the ways of love and justice and peace, and within their own hearts and among the community and out into the world, going ahead of them wherever they went. So likewise, when we open ourselves up to receive the Spirit, we should expect that Spirit to inspire us in the same ways that Joel talked about and that first Christians were inspired. We should be living expectantly awaiting dreams and visions and prophecies in our midst. And when we do see or dream something or feel nudged by the spirit to say something, we shouldn't shy away from it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that those who prophesy, and I think that includes visions and dreams here, do so for the strengthening and the encouragement and the comfort of the church. And with this definition in mind, you may have already prophesied without really realizing it. Um, Because much of prophecy is just reminding ourselves and one another of who we really are and where we're headed for the purpose of building us up both individually and collectively into Christlikeness. And as an aside, I feel like I have to say that I, did, I prepared the sermon with more than a little trepidation um, because I have some friends who've been really wounded by Christians speaking and acting in very unChrist-like ways while claiming to be inspired by the Spirit. Um, I have a friend who was told to stay in her abusive relationship and just submit more wholeheartedly to her husband. Um, I, I have another friend who was told that her chronic illness is her own fault because she doesn't have the faith to be healed. Um, So, while the Spirit most definitely inspires us to speak prophetically to one another, not everyone who claims to speak by and through the Spirit is actually doing so. If you think about it, the Holy Spirit is constantly pointing to God the Father and Jesus the Son, so it wouldn't make sense for the Spirit to inspire someone to promote themselves, or their own power, or their own righteousness, and if you take a look at the prophets in the Old Testament, when they had hard words for God's people, they weren't the ones in power speaking to people who were wounded or, or vulnerable. It, it was the other way around. They were speaking to those in power. Um, and, and the prophets, the, pers- the people speaking prophetically were the ones in danger. You know, They were usually the ones that were gonna have violence uh, visited upon them, uh, not, not necessarily the people who, were, who they were speaking to. Um, So if someone's claiming to speak in the authority of the Spirit, but is not demonstrating the Spirit's character, or seems to be propping up um, sort of existing systems of of power and inequality, that's probably not the Spirit. Now, the flip side of this is that everything that pops into my head to say to someone is not necessarily prophetic. Um, Keep that in mind as you listen to the sermon. It's entirely possible for me to believe something really strongly or to have a really significant urge to say something to someone and still be completely wrong. Even though I'm a believer, even though I have the spirit. So how do we know if that overwhelming urge to speak is the spirit? We do our best. We make a habit of listening and looking for the Spirit. We spend time learning about God so that we can better recognize when something doesn't seem to match with God's character. And we open our hearts to walk in love, which by the way is the greatest gift, even greater than prophecy. And finally, we continually place ourselves in a posture of mutual submission to one another as a community. We worship a God who models this so beautifully with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit constantly lifting one another up. And we can do that too with God's help. We can lift up God. We can lift up one another. This can be as simple as prefacing a statement with, this seems right to me, but I could be wrong. Tell me what you think. If we can all speak and listen with this kind of humility and graciousness, then when we do get things wrong, we can help each other figure it out and we can all move forward together in love. Now if you will, humor me one more time and take a deep breath. That spirit, breath, life, that's sacred stuff and it's in each of you Our creator God has made us and given us life. The spirit who over the bent world broods has been poured out on us. Not just you, y'all. So let's open ourselves up to the spirit-drenched identity that's already ours. And let's open our hearts to one another so that the spirit can use us to build each other up into the beloved community that the body of Christ can and should be. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here. Um, Thank you that you can speak to us and through us. Bind us together in love and make us more and more aware of your presence. Amen.